Hey folks, this is Austin here, introducing you to our Otaku Unite documentary review, and I just wanted to pop on here really quickly to say that the podcast that you're about to hear was recorded over a year ago. Isn't that ridiculous? Uh, we posted that we were going to be doing this episode like ages ago, and probably most of you have forgotten, but those that didn't forget, we didn't forget either. This episode just happened to sort of fall through the cracks during our production schedule. We got really busy, and I will admit I was also super busy with like grad school and work stuff and just didn't have the mental capacity to get this sucker released because it had a little bit more audio hiccups in it than a normal episode that we had. Uh, so I just kept putting it off and putting it off and we recorded other episodes, released other episodes, and then suddenly it was an entire year later. But here it is. I think it's largely... it, it largely doesn't really feel like a podcast that was recorded a year ago. Maybe some of the things that we mention are a little bit outdated. This particular episode was a lot of fun to do, a lot of fun to put together, and I'm really excited to finally share it with you guys, so uh, please enjoy. I mean, I see people dressed up real, kind of like Star Wars-like, I guess they're... I guess they're doing the characters out of the comic books, I guess. Welcome to another episode of the Third Impact Anime Podcast. My name is Sully, and we're doing another entry in my personal mini-series, Otakumentaries, where we look at the various documentaries that have covered otaku subculture and anime fandom that have come out over the years in America, Japan, and elsewhere. With me today, I have Austin. I prefer to be referred to as Ogre, Convention Security. And Tobias. Yep, I'm, I'm here. Maybe not entirely mentally present, but... And we have Bill. Uh, got my ska and punk mixtape that I'm going to play as we get ready to go to conventions next year. And if you're able to guess from the sort of esoteric introductions everyone has given, we are talking about the <sighs> film, in quotation <laughs> marks, uh, documentary in scare quotes. The latest addition to the Criterion catalog. Oh god, uh, we're talking about the 2006 release, Otaku Unite. Otaku means obsessive nerd. This is a documentary that I have very vivid memories of watching for the first time because it was back when I was interning at the vintage store and Austin and our friend Jamie came over to my apartment that I was living in at the time and Austin said, Sully, have you ever seen... Otaku Unite, and I said no, and then Austin's eyes lit up the same way, like a predatory animal, <laughs> like its li eyes light up uh, when it witnesses vulnerable prey, and that is when he whipped out his laptop, hooked it up to my TV, and he forced me to watch this... Uh, this. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself. It is... Otaku Unite is not so much a documentary as it is... Kind of a carnival sideshow that has been committed to film. Um, I have a lot of issues with this movie, but I think as we discuss it, a lot of that's going to come out. And I'm going to try to keep my, my rage and my sort of academic need to have things discussed in a serious, 
incisive manner. So, uh, so what you're trying to say, Sully, this is pretty much the real life version of The Ring because Austin made you watch it and now you had to pass on the curse to us. Yeah, I was very convinced, like, for some reason I had it in my mind that Tobias had already seen this movie. And then when I linked the the YouTube video of it to the Discord we used to plan the podcast, I just saw in real time him say, what, what, what did you make me watch? <laughs> I, uh, it's only I lived these days. I don't need to watch the documentary. Yes, as we, as we discussed, I, I had asked Tobias back in those those uh, primordial times when you had to hitch up your brontosaurus to go to the nearest anime con is this what it was really like is this is this what it was like in those halcyon days and you said that yes yes it was um i actually love that uh i know exactly the day that i watched this movie for the first time because austin (laughs) tweeted about it it was july 12th 2018 the just night of July 12th, just over two years ago, when I first saw this film. Thank you, Austin, for documenting this important part of my life's narrative. Oh, it's absolutely <laughs> my my pleasure. And I guess I'll be the odd man out and say that I actually, there are parts of this documentary, documentary that I really like and appreciate. So hopefully we'll have a lively discussion about it. Austin, I, when was the first time you saw this? If you do you well, able to remember I, uh, I, I can't pinpoint to you exactly when I saw it for the first time, but I know that I, I bought a used copy of it at the local used bookstore, which is almost where I get about 90% of the DVDs and Blu-rays in my collection is from the used bookstore. Support support your local used bookstore. Um, <laughs> so I saw it there and I thought, wow, this this looks really interesting. It has a Central Park Media logo on it so that means it has some degree of officialness i guess but thinking about central park media they'd pretty much license whatever but uh, i was really fascinated by it and it it on first glance it looks like the most 2000s thing ever because it really is the most 2000s thing ever and especially the box art. Like, I'm sure if people haven't actually seen this documentary, maybe they've seen the box art. Maybe they've seen it at their own used bookstores before. And it's just got, like, some very dated, like, digital camera, hyper-flash photography of very dated cosplayers on the front with those extremely, like, shiny wigs that were very common back then. Like, very halloween store wigs not like the not like the really fancy ones you can get today that most cosplayers get and just everything looks just a lot cheaper because it probably was and there's no shame to that it just looks very dated so it stands out to our you know 2010s 2020s sensibilities of you know what sort of glamorous cosplay convention sort of imagery looks like nowadays it really does radiate that uh naughty oddies energy doesn't it (laughs) it really does and it it just looks like it kind of looks like a like something somebody would like make and then print themselves in their own garage which is i mean not too dissimilar from the truth so bill when was the first time you saw this um uh austin is our I guess are the the ring bear because he uh, said, "Bill, you like documentaries. You should watch this." And uh, he he he, I think uh, he either let me borrow his DVD copy or he sent me uh, the YouTube link, and I watched it. 
And I said, this, like, like you've been saying, this is very 2000s. Um, I think there's some good parts in it. Um, like the interviews with Helen McCarthy, who's in it for like five seconds, and uh, Fred Patton uh, and Carl Horn. Uh, but I, it's all, it's also, well, it's very cringy at times. I kind of like that it was made cause it's a, it's a time capsule of anime fandom at that particular time, because there's, there's some things that happen in that film that I doubt would be seen today at a modern convention and just kind of the, the tone at a convention, just how everyone's very goofy and, um, kind of just not very reserved, I guess, would be the way I would describe it. Um, it, it it's a lot more a goofy atmosphere in, in the movie from what they portray. Yeah, to sort of expound upon that, I think the, the movie itself, like the, the content, um, I mean, that's, that's pretty accurate. Uh, that we, when we talk about it being like fever dream-esque, I think it's really more to do with the editing as a documentary itself. As far as the subject matter itself, no, that was pretty pretty fairly accurate. Um, uh, otaku dumb anime fandom was a lot. This is pretty much just awkward teenagers transitioning between those times when you know, they sort of talked about fourth, fifth generation tapes sitting in a small little hotel room on a twelve inch TV, and then what we know of fandom now, more the the larger scale events with everything being more mainstream. You know, Otaku Unite is very much that awkward teenage years where. Uh, you know, sort of transitioning into what it is now. And so I think with that, that's what kind of wild, I think really probably the greatest weaknesses of this documentary is just the editing in and of itself. I think one thing we need to really, that might help the listeners and ourselves orient ourselves with this documentary is like, when did each of us start going to anime cons? Because my first con was in May of 2010. So, um, I, my mindset is kind of like in that weird middle period between when this was kind of ending and the yeah. current state of cons as they were what was beginning. So Tobias, when was your first anime con? Mine was AWA in 2004. So right, right before this came out on DVD. So that kind of shocks me because Tobias, you, you only just watched this documentary for the first time in preparing for this podcast, so yep. I'm sure you'd heard of it throughout the years. How, how did you manage to not watch it all this time? I have actually only heard of it from you guys. Oh, um, wow, okay. I think this is definitely not a super popular thing. It's important mm. to realize that a lot of these things, especially from this era, these fan creations are very much insular, these very community things. So like going into here, like I've heard of Kaiju Big Battle before. They went to AWA and did stuff before. I've heard that name, but I've honestly ever actually never actually went to dig into what it was. Uh, so this is the first time I've actually seen Kaiju Big Battle uh, in this documentary, even though I've heard of it. We, uh, Bill, you brought up uh, in the, the pre-recording discussion, like the concept of AMVs. You know, they don't talk about these here. The big AMV thing a few years after this would be the AMV Hell series, a thing that was very popular in its time. But now no one would, jumping into the fandom would know what like AMV Hell is, for instance. So I think with the talk to Unite, this might have been a thing which went in certain circles. Uh, but honestly, I haven't heard a whole lot about anime documentaries on the whole. So I think it's just one thing that you kind of had to have been there and, and, and you know, dug into. I think, 
I think by it's also by its by its nature, documentaries can be niche, and unless you're kind of seeking it out, um, you people aren't going to engage with it. And also, just by the subject matter, unless it's a very prominent name um, or subject matter, people won't engage. People aren't going to be as active and know about it. So, for example, a documentary. That probably more anime fans know would be the documentaries about Hayao Miyazaki, and the only reason why anime fans know about that is because um, they, I think they were put out by Shout Factory, mm-hmm. uh, and they were covering and looking into a very popular and prominent figure. Whereas with this, this is just kind of about general fandom at a particular time. Um, and, uh, I do think maybe it's a bit telling that we do have several big name people in this, but I've not heard any one of them advertise, go out of the way to advertise this documentary, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, I think, and I think it's less, maybe not so much the content itself as in a way it's directed and cut may not be the most, um, hmm, the most glowing representation of otaku. <laughs> and I think even if we, we're, that's we're the thing. Really, yeah, we're definitely going to get into that later, but I think this documentary is one of those things that has a considerable portion of things that are like, wow, that was pretty good. But overall, it's kind of hard to recommend as an entire piece. It's, it's and, rough, yeah. And Tobias, when you describe it as like a, as like a comedy effort, I don't get that sense from the director because I've tried to find, uh, and we'll get into that after uh, this, we'll go into the production of this documentary, but from what I have found on him, I don't get the sense that he was like in the community. It really kind of comes off to me as maybe he had friends who were, or maybe he mm-hmm. just, you know, knew about it through the grapevine and he was like, oh, this is this is a, a subject for a film. Right. Um, even though this apparently was uh, shot between uh, November of 2000 and summer of 2003. So he did three years of this. Um, yeah, Sully, I can speak to that later on because I, I, whenever I was watching it this time, I did watch it with the director's commentary on and there's a few bonus features on here as well with the director. So whenever we get to that, I can discuss that some more. Okay, but at least the sense I got was this is someone who, uh, who kind of saw a story and is not part of the community. And I'm not saying that like, oh, if someone is, is you know, cutting this or editing this in a way that doesn't show us in a glowing light, they must not be one of us. Because I think you could show the seedier or more uh, eccentric, if to put a, a polite word on it, aspects of anime fandom, but still be a, a member of the community. But this really, again, there's, a, there's an element of the sideshow that I find a little hard to swallow when I watch this and a little uncomfortable um, just because there are some things where people are having harmless fun and just, you know, living their best life, as we say, in 2020. Um, and the director, or at least the the way it's edited, comes off as, oh, look at these sad, pathetic weirdos. And I, I think I have a, a huge issue with, you know, people who just are doing their thing and not bothering anyone being kind of sidelined or shown as, you know, right. oddballs. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill, before we get off the subject, when was your first anime convention? My first anime convention was probably in 2007, probably Animesman 2007. Okay. So in terms of people who have been in, um, I mean, most of us have been to anime in some form or another since we were kids, but in terms of being in the con scene, it kind of goes Tobias, you, 
and me and Austin right around the same time. Yeah, because Sully, we didn't know each other at the time, but our first convention was the same convention in the same year. Right. So that gives us like a good framework as maybe how we'll each react to this too, having kind of been there, you know, quote unquote. That is a great way that you put it earlier whenever you were talking about Animazement 2010 as, as you know, you and I, mm-hmm. our first foray into conventions and that really being like the tail end of the tail end of the tail end of what we see sort of beginning in the events of otaku unite because Mm -hmm. in 2010 the late aughts and conventions it still had a very kind of diy sort of feel to it um it didn't anime wasn't quite as corporatized as it is now i mean there's Mm -hmm. absolutely corners of conventions that are still very diy focused but at this point you have like major companies sponsoring anime conventions that get you know tens of thousands of attendees and they have just absolutely exploded in the last decade and they've always sort of been exploding since they first started but um this was still like going to an anime convention whenever we started going to it wasn't sort of like a very standard social function that lots of people do nowadays right i mean the last anime con i went to and i really hope it is not the last anime con i go to um was uh awa in 2019 and i mean when we were there they had like that motorcycle from some show that you could get on they had like all the huge displays and all the you know company booths i mean it was wild um, and that was a, a huge departure from even like what Animazement was like in 2010 and beyond even like the corporate influence of like having Crunchyroll and Funimation and uh, Sony essentially being there, you know, promoting stuff and, and giving out, you know, flyers and goodies and having industry panelists. Uh, There's just sort of the cultural things of like this was the end of live journal and the beginning of tumblr this is when you know yaoi paddles were being banned this is where glomping was kind of going out of style this was i think maybe 2011 was the last animes when i went to maybe 2012 where people still did the caramel dancing and the, the, the i was Nyan just thinking thing. about that like uh 2011 sort of, was the year caramel dancing died <laughs> yeah i mean that kind of feels like i i feel as i go to cons now i'm recognizing things like oh we didn't have that when i was i'm becoming the old people in the show where it's like oh you kids shaking my cane well that happens when you've got a decade in this stuff well yeah i mean i'm i'm i do not have a tiktok i don't care about tiktok but all the kids now are talking about the tiktok (laughs) and i'm just like you know what that that is how i'm sure these people are like god these kids in their tumblr and their live journals and their caramel dance and you know what's funny is that even with uh, what you're saying, even in the documentary towards the end, they have the, well, back in my day, they didn't have to get a fourth generation VHS copy. They they have so much options now, which I didn't have back in the day. So I think that's the, that back in my day, a mentality never goes away. It, it goes from one generation to the next. <laughs> and I, I personally have, uh, I'm of two minds of that because one I think there is a bit of cane shaking and I can be like that and I try to watch so it's like you know what the TikTok cosplay memes are not for me but if you kids are you know happy and healthy and doing your thing you know make good choices kids it's fine by me but I also think it's important when people say like hey remember 
you're very lucky compared to what we had to go through. As long as they're not saying, oh, it should be like it was. You have to pay $100 for a fourth generation tape and you have to suffer. I, I don't believe that. But I think it's important to say, look how far we've come. Like, I think making sure people are aware of, of their history is important, so long as you do not uh, alienate them with it. Right. So how this documentary got made, the director is Eric Bressler, and according to him, according to his website, where one of the only pages that still works on his website is the Otaku Unite archive he put up, um, he writes, I began shooting Otaku Unite in November of 2000. Production wrapped during the summer of 2003. Its world premiere was held at the 2004 Philadelphia Film Festival. It was released on DVD courtesy of Central Park Media in June 2006. Um, according, oh, go ahead, Austin. That really is quite a long time for him to have worked on this thing because, you know, you watch it and think, oh, wow, this DVD came into, came out in 2006. But so much of the footage you see is from like 2001, 2002, because I was listening to the director's commentary and they said they probably went to about 12 conventions all across the country mm -hmm. to get all the footage that they did at very different, you know, over the course of many different years. And one of the most interesting things that the director... And I forget who the it was it was two two guys on the commentary track. I forget who the other gentleman was. But one of the most interesting things that the director said is that he did not want to finish this documentary until he got an interview with Carl Masick. And at the time, Carl Masick was still like very wary about attending anime conventions because of a lot of the like bad energy that a lot of fans had given him for a long time at conventions for those that don't know probably a lot of younger fans might not be aware and even this is sort of pre our generation too but carl masick was the um basically the guy in charge of creating robotech which was a obviously a very huge influential anime that ran on um on a network television that got a lot of people in the u.s to be able to be exposed to anime for the first time, like along alongside things like Speed Racer and Battle of the Planets, etc. Robotech was a huge big deal. Um, and he was kind of the face of that in the United States, uh, for better or worse, because a lot of people really hated Robotech because it was like a bastardized version of Macross. It's a whole big dang thing. But the director was a really big fan of Robotech whenever he was a kid. So I think that is really interesting that he's just like, you know, holding his cards and waiting for the day that he can sit down and chat with Carl Masick before he puts the uh, puts the documentary out. And at this point, Carl Masick passed away a good number of years ago. So I think it's really nice to be able to have him in the documentary to speak to sort of the legacy of Robotech and what Robotech did to sort of lift up the popularity of Japanese animation across the United States in a very, very visible way. Yes, as of this recording, Carl, Ma Carl Masick has been gone for a decade now. He passed in 2010, mm -hmm. and he really is sort of a controversial figure, but not for, for reasons that are mostly petty fan reasons. And even though um, there's a lot of legitimate criticism that can be leveled towards uh, the Macross Robotech fiasco, most of that seems to go on to Harmony Gold's end rather than Carl Masick's yeah. end. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is this is just my personal opinion, but I, I think Carl Masick kind of did did the best thing that he could have done for that time because essentially what he was trying to do was do what kind of needed to be done to normalize Japanese animation for a very very wide American audience and you just couldn't really do that with like subtitled anime I mean you could make a criticism that he didn't have to change it as much as he did and of course I wasn't there so I can't only speak to it so much but I mean he seems like he did it for he he created Robotech for very legitimate reasons but there's barely any excuse for the situation that harmony gold has put us in these days yeah it very much is a continuation or maybe the uh the origin of the same arguments we have now of you know sub versus dub and censorship in anime that is you know it's still still going on in the year of our lord 2020 it's this idea of keeping the original work pure and you know like it was intended versus making it something that a wider audience could enjoy. And, you know, I, even though, I mean, I watched some Robotech back in the day, I don't know if you guys had, had watched any back then, but that's, that's in a large way is, is kind of why you're here. Uh, Robotech did normalize it in a lot of ways, being one of the, one of the first things to be on TV as anime and, 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 you know, distinctly anime. And we can, we can speak to that being, like you said, bastardized, but, yeah, you know, there had to be something to get to get people in the door to begin with, and I think uh, you know we can applaud Robotech for that. Right, and that's one thing I will give Bressler in this documentary is ha- taking the time to interview Masick and and document his opinions and his information about working in the anime industry as it was in that time. Um, I think because Masick was such a maligned figure in the community for so long we really lost out on a lot of inside info on what it took to take animation from Japan and bring it to the States. Um, we kind of cut off our own nose, speaking as a, as a whole here, uh, when it came to the treatment of Masek. So I am glad that this information was around at all. I mean, it's pretty much this and the other interviews he did and then the Cast interview he did right before he passed that really kind of fills in those gaps that we have because there was just so much animosity that the community scared him off by sending him death threats and and making him into this sort of uh, pariah figure and also just the fact that because he was seen as this sort of massacrist uh, i think there is there was actually a fan term that combined basic with massacre to describe his translation jobs and his adaptation (laughs) jobs Uh, yeah they thought they were clever that's that they thought they were cute um, because of that, we really just sort of wrote him off as like uh, an enemy of the community as rather uh, someone who, as Austin put it, did what they had to do in the time period. We really think that, uh, that anime should have always just brought, been brought over the way it was without thinking about the fact that Japan and America have had a very complicated uh, domestic foreign relationship with each other over the years because of World War II and the 80s economic boom and all of that. So uh, he was kind of, you know, did what he could with one hand time behind his back. Robotech was one of the real you know, watersheds or key events. Um, and that came along in uh, 
1984 and 85. Carl Masick was uh, essentially the uh, guy who made it happen. I saw the potential of bringing something like this into the country and uh, you know exposing it to a larger audience than 25 guys in a room on a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. There was a gray market of importation of toys and model kits and stuff, and I thought that it would be a cool uh, way to increase the awareness and the sale of this product in the States to have animation available for fans to look at in English. So Otaku Unite really is Bressler's most notable credit, at least from what I could find on IMDb and what I could still access from his personal website. He is uh, taken from his website, the site editor and founder for Cinadelphia.com, the online center of the Philadelphia film community, and he is the director of programming at the Philadelphia Mausoleum of Contemporary Art. Uh, he has served as the program director for the Cinadelphia Film Festival, which ran throughout the city of Philadelphia from April, April 4th through the 27th of 2013, and he is the pop culture-filled mind behind the found footage comedy show Video Pirates. Uh, this is all taken from IMDb and his website, and this is all as of 2013, so this is seven years old now. I cannot find much current information except he, in 2017, he was on the TV documentary Outsider. He did their episode on David the Rock Nelson, who if you've never heard of, he is a trip. He is this uh, indie horror filmmaker who shoots everything on video with Halloween masks, and uh, I hope they handled him with a little more... A little more care than they handled Otaku Unite, but uh, yes, David the Rock Nelson is certainly is certainly an auteur figure in the horror world. He also received a special thanks in the credits of Birdemic Two: The Resurrection, but I'm going to guess <laughs> that was probably just like he was a backer on like Patreon or whatever or Indiegogo or whatever the hell they used to make. <laughs> that monstrosity <laughs> but so i just felt like you know what it was a special thanks it, it might be worth mentioning here isn't is it bird dimmick that movie they have in uh schitt's creek it, uh, so so that is actually probably a parody of bird dimmick um that is the crowening uh <laughs> actually the crowening three um but yeah i am almost 100 percent sure that has to be a direct reference to bird dimmick which yeah. was a very terrible um independent film that is a rip off of the birds and no one can act in it and i'm not this is not a bird dimmit podcast um. <laughs> it should be what a shame so i think the, the, the thing about um looking at his credits here you know you mentioned earlier that he's probably was never really an otaku himself but he obviously does have a lot of love for for cinema for movies if nothing else for like kitschy horror movies and he most certainly like was aware of and probably did go to you know some sci-fi cons if not anime cons uh you know I've, I've i've got friends that in college were more movie nerds than they were anime nerds so i think it is an interesting idea that, that maybe he wasn't so much going into this looking to make fun of the anime fandom but he did probably interact with a lot of, of anime nerds and probably did want to explore that space and I've you know that is realize. that is one thing that actually did kind of it, it's it it uh, shocked me a little bit listening to the audio commentary about how he and the other guy on there were very like they were very matter of fact in the sense that like yeah anime fans they can be a little bit awkward sometimes but there's also such a such a rich like art here that really needs to be celebrated by the larger film community by the larger like pop culture community and yeah the the niche fandom spaces like a lot of niche fandom spaces are very odd places or at least they can be at times but 
I was kind of very pleased that they, in the commentary, did not resort to sort of mid-2000s, like, mean snark humor. Yeah. Because I kind of expected that, and I didn't get it, so I was very pleased. I don't know if that makes my bar too low, but... You know, know. And see, I, just... I felt like there was a little snark because there would be a moment where uh, one of the talking heads would say something like, anime has deeper storylines than Western cartoons, and then it would cut to, you know, like a Robotech dub or something, and it, it seemed like they were undercutting their point, like they were showing stuff that was trying to say, mm -hmm. they say this, but not really. I mean, they, they kind of highlight, oh, the dubs are, are not that great, and, oh, mm -hmm. the dialogue is clunky. And I don't know how much of that is like, okay, it's Central Park Media, we've, we've met Carl Masick, like what can we afford to put into a documentary? Um, like what can we get the rights to? Mm -hmm. And how much of it was like, these people are, are kind of sure, full sure. of it. Because actually, if no, and I absolutely okay. can see that if absolutely there is a distinct difference between what a creator may think and what they actually produce and there can be a disconnect and how some of that comes across. But I think, like, I don't think the director was out to make something that explicitly made fun of anime fans. But I think there's probably, there is most certainly some things about this documentary that maybe unconsciously or not kind of do. Well, the, this yeah. documentary, it reminds me very much of those kind of features and articles about comic books in like the early to mid 2000s when marvel was starting to get big like that biff peng wow comics are not just for your kids anymore that kind of <laughs> that that kind of uh uh navel gazy type of um look at it and i am just kind of not taking it so seriously but also treating it as like this ain't your this ain't uh, just a kid's thing um, anymore. I, I don't know if I'm describing this well, but it. it you do you understand what I'm talking about? Yeah. No, I I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. I think and I yeah yeah I, I would agree that there's not really that maybe their purpose isn't wasn't really to make fun of it. Uh, they do kind of do it on accident, you know, kind of like you mentioned. But I do think that anime fandom then wasn't as serious as it is now. Anime wasn't this attractive, you know, uh, you know, like sexy fandom that uh, that everyone's into that celebrities are watching. <laughs> it was this goofy thing with these goofy characters and your your love for it. You know, it was kind of admittedly, you know, we're a little immature, but we love it and we have this passion for this this stuff. We don't have to have the excuse of it being serious and for you know for adults, not kids stuff. Like they knew they were into this weird kind of thing and they celebrated that in itself.
think it's important to talk about how this documentary is kind of structured. So the first uh, five or six minutes is actually, it's almost like a mini documentary because they don't really refer back to it where they talk about uh, Kaiju Big Battle, uh, which is sort of like people dress up in Godzilla style costumes and they wrestle with cardboard buildings. Um, I was kind of confused. I was like, is this like a preview thing? Is it, is it like a mini documentary? Because it, it felt like, maybe because it wasn't directly anime related because it was still like Japanese culture, but not um, animation. They didn't know how to splice it in, but it felt kind of like, it was just kind of weird sitting there at the beginning. It almost feels like its own separate like mini documentary. Yep. And then as they go on, they have like a short history of anime in America. They have cosplay, they have um, the cosplay contest. Like it feels like this documentary has perhaps because it was filmed over the course of three years, a lot to say, and it doesn't know how to say it. It's a little splintered, a little um, a little uh, scattershot in places. And I don't know how I feel about that because it kind of feels like the director was going after anything that looked shiny or looked particularly interesting. And it makes it feel incoherent in places, at least for me. Yeah, and I know this was, I mean, this, Otaku Unite originally started out as like a student project. I mean, it lived on much further than that and they realized that there was a lot more there that they wanted to do with it beyond just like a 10 to 15 minute like student documentary mm -hmm. but it, it 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 feels kind of exactly what it is which is like the very first film made by like essentially amateurs um i think it comes together better than probably a lot of amateur documentaries do because at least they profiled like interesting incredible people throughout it in addition to the like sort of the your um more pedestrian convention goers but it, yeah it's it's very disjointed and that's probably because of exactly what you said Sully like filming it over the course of many years and the fact that like doing a documentary about anime is such a gigantic thing to bite off like there's because there's so many different angles you can take with it like you could do an entire 90 minute documentary just on the history of fandom cosplay or just on the history of manga or specifically on importing anime to the united states but they sort of try and do all of those things in the same documentary and you kind of get a little bit of whiplash and this documentary is only an hour long. Um, yeah. So yeah. It, it goes by really fast. And I, I generously, I suppose I could say that the director is trying to give us a sampling of everything that the community has to offer. But it does feel a little like, um, again, it, I think at, people think anime is just one thing. Like it's like, oh, anime is just Naruto and Dragon Ball Z and Sailor Moon and it's that. And they don't realize that it means the entire animated output of the country of Japan <laughs> and then complicate yeah. that by saying the entire animated output of the country of Japan as interpreted and licensed and imported by Western fans. And that can mean the United States, that can mean France, that can mean England, that can mean Australia. And then complicate that by saying there are conventions for that and people dress <laughs> up and some people uh, do karaoke and some people run those conventions and some people are in the actual industry. And then it, it feels like people would just say, I'm going to make a documentary about anime. And then they realize, oh, this is this is a big old iceberg underneath all of this. Yeah, the, 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 the trap that this documentary falls into is that because there's so many topics that you can cover, it basically becomes a generalist documentary, which 
it's a it's a jack of all trades documentary in that because it's trying to cover so much in so little time it doesn't give us a better understanding or give us the finer details of the subtopics like cosplay like how anime uh came to to america and or just general convention culture and it goes down very specific rabbit holes, like doing the profile of Steve Bennett and doing <laughs> the profile of everyone's favorite, Johnny Otaku. And, I mean, in principle, those are interesting things to do, but both of those guys are just like, why? <laughs> yeah, Bennett is not really that interesting of a subject himself. Just, he like, he is... Or at least they are not able to make him an interesting subject. And Johnny Otaku is only interesting in as much as we are meant to cringe at him and sort of shudder at his antics. And I I don't think... I Because from what I've read, from the little bit of research, Johnny Otaku probably deserves all that's coming to him. But if you're going to have like a figure like that where the audience is meant to boo and hiss or, again, gawk at him like he is a sideshow freak, I would have preferred to have someone... Uh, who was a good fan, quote-unquote good fan, like a really dedicated cosplayer or maybe a staffer at one of the cons who, like, we follow and we see how much work it takes to actually put in an anime con, like someone who kind of balances that because otherwise it feels like it is, this is a rough sampling of anime in America and here's this weirdo that we're going to follow around because, you know, well, he's he's cheap entertainment. Well, I, I think for them, they wanted to find somebody that represented, like, the ultimate fan and he was probably going to sign the nda that would allow them to film him in different locations like his house or his community college radio station and because he did multiple things from cosplay to doing his community radio show to um being part of the convention staff at awa they said oh this is someone that we could cover um, in our documentary and show as kind of an ultra fan this the problem is that he by his nature is kind of awkward and that's common among uh, anime fans but I think just the way they edit him it just it makes you cringe and it's yeah. not good because it just makes I would guess a general audience would laugh at some of the things that he says yeah it's like yeah. I think if you showed him if you showed him to an empathetic anime audience, they would kind of understand and get it. But for a general audience, it feels like we're picking on this guy. Right. And I feel like they had opportunities like the Sailor Jamboree group, who I thought were very cool and I actually remember hearing about in my early days getting into the Sailor Moon musicals, like okay, they do these very elaborate for the time cosplays. They do these dance routines and go to different cons. Why don't we talk about them? Um, they At least one of them signed an NDA where she appeared and, you know, was a talking head very briefly. Um, that feels like a, like a sort of better balance. It's like, you know, we have this guy, but we also have these really dedicated fans who seem to be a little more... Uh, they, they, they perform better for the camera, for lack of a better way of putting it. I, I just felt like, why are we following him? Like, what is what is the Johnny Otaku story that Bressler is trying to get us to understand? Because really all I understand is this is a very passionate but very misguided person. And unless you're trying to use him as a synecdoche for the entirety 
of the anime community, I don't think that's fair because they're very passionate, but not all mm -hmm. of them are as, again, the Sailor Jamboree seem to be very successful in what they do and very well adjusted. Okay, why are you focusing on the guy who uh, seems to be, even among the other otaku in the, in the documentary, seems to be a pariah, seems to be someone they're like, no, we don't want to hang out with him. Like that's, I guess, where I get the disconnect is yeah. if you're going to use him as a part for the whole, he doesn't feel like a good representative sample because you're showing me people who are better exact not just because they they film better because they seem to be better people or more well adjusted but just because he seems to be himself an outlier yeah and one of the things that bressler did mention in the commentary was that johnny otaku reached out to them about being interested and it might just be one of those things oh. where it's just like oh well we've got this guy and look at him he does so much he runs a j-pop radio thing on his community college radio station he volunteers he cosplays he does all that stuff he sounds great and then they sort of get into it and then it kind of falls apart later on yeah it, it does kind of get worse as it goes on I mean, I, 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 I agree that, yeah, this is definitely the part of the documentary where they are making fun of uh, what it means to be an otaku and otaku people, uh, anime American anime fans more so than anything. But I, I think, again, this is still fandom in its awkward teenage years, and he is very much a, a, a good representation, maybe not a good representation, but uh, in some ways, definitely accurate for his time representation. Uh, you've got mm -hmm. the guy that thinks he's going to be cool playing Tenshi songs and Inuyasha songs on his college radio station. You know, you've got the guy that tries to dabble in every aspect of the con scene, uh, overexerting himself, someone who lives and breathes for the community, uh, even to an unhealthy manner. And... Mm -hmm. Yeah, Which I, the I, most I'm kind of the most unhealthy thing that he does is walk around the convention center without his shoes on. That is that was pretty gross. Yeah, or, uh, or <laughs> oh, sorry, Tobias, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, uh, like it's it's it very it's still. I think the thing to take away from this is we make fun of you know, the tone of the of the piece overall, but this is not entirely inaccurate. Uh, anime fandom, anime culture, convention culture was not the more mainstream corporate thing, I uh, used the word corporate earlier, uh, that it is now, and even the 2010s and now the 2020s. It was very much a bunch of weirdos. You know, you've got people like Johnny Otaku, you've got the dude that carries a bone around, you've got Dave Merrill with his awful goatee and t-shirt in the hot tub. <laughs> like, these are, this is definitely the, the age of nerds not being, before nerds got sexy, basically, or learned how to dress like <laughs> Tobias, i don't i don't mean to shatter your perception but they have not gotten sexy and in fact they have not learned how to dress it i mean it definitely has <laughs> there's the, at least the perception of of it uh, nerddom being more more in the pop culture and you can make the argument that the yeah, anime has been mainstream for as long as it's been on tv that you know this nerd stuff like comics have been you know in the mainstream the quote-unquote pop culture for even through this but these are definitely the times when you had the perception of nerds getting stuffed in lockers and stuff. And I mean, we, I would say use the term, the, uh, you know, the first person there, like we, in some ways embody that, uh, we've grown up a little bit, I'd like to think, and we've gotten better, but, um, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't say again, Johnny Otaku is the best, uh, the best representation, but it certainly is not the most inaccurate 
I I will say that uh, what research I could do about Johnny Otaku was uh, he was very determined to become a voice actor. To the point he began stalking industry guests, mostly from Funimation, and he moved from Tennessee to Texas to the Fort Worth, Dallas area, uh, where he was subsequently banned from Funimation's offices and premises, and most cons apparently in the Tennessee area banned him. Um, he has since vanished off the internet. I And the fact that I don't know what happened to him terrifies me because that just it turns him into a cryptid. <laughs> yep, yep. He's just out there. He could be anywhere. <laughs> he's he out could there. be anywhere. No, he, he's just complaining about how the cosplay cos, uh, contest was rigged and that's what ruined his chances about being a voice actor. <laughs> that the, the cosplay contest segment where they have him... Uh, very much. The issue is the 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 vast uh, the vast crevice that exists between with all of us our perceptions of ourselves and the way we are perceived by other people. This is the thing. This is the area in which cringe is born, and the the vast chasm that divides Johnny Otaku's sense of himself and how other people see him um, could cover the length of the entire sea of serenity. <laughs> and the it's moment where <laughs> and the moment in which he in his Inuyasha cosplay strips shirtless and reveals to all all to witness his flabby pasty uh, awkwardly proportioned body <laughs> and I say this with the most generous terms I can because it's just again that is what makes it so uncomfortable is he is flexing and posing and and strutting about like cock of the walk and then everyone is cheering and whooping on but you can tell that uh what he thinks of himself and what they think of him are two vastly different things and it is very excruciating to watch a, both definitely part of that time when the, the adage of you know let your freak flag fly was you know a thing and that was the thing that a lot of these anime fans were latching onto. you know at the cons you can you know this is part of the culture everyone everyone wants you to strut around in your Uriyasha cosplay like that that's you're doing a good thing and everyone mm -hmm. welcomes you here but the worst part is that. he didn't even take his watch off <laughs> that's that's the, that's the worst part to you austin yes does inuyasha wear a watch i didn't think so well you know one of those little 20th century gifts that kagome gave to him you know so that's that you know There is a sort of a, um, a disconnect between you. This is part of community you're part of, and you're all we're all kind of weirdos here. But you are in public, and that's a that was a hard 
disconnect the stomach for a lot of fans of that era. Yeah, and I, absolutely. I have, I have on this podcast said before, one of the things I found very comforting about the anime community is that sort of, we're all weirdos here. And I, as much as I support that, I think the, the, the camera complicates it because it is mm-hmm. not just Johnny Otaku in that moment and the people in the audience, like it would be in any other situation, it is him, the audience, and the camera mm-hmm. um, injecting a film narrative and film language into that moment. And and not just the camera, the editing as well. It's, a, it's another element of it. Yeah. Right. And I think that's what also makes it... Um, because i think when it happens in the wild without recording without a documentation of it there is that sort of freedom i mean i've seen people who i i and again despite the fact that i i looked upon johnny otaku's body in complete horror i try to be rather body positive and you do at con see people who perhaps in a in another social situation would not have the confidence or even the the area the space to uh show off parts of their body uh, in ways that they do at cons. They wear costumes that perhaps are more revealing or they wear clothing more revealing or they wear clothing that um, would not pass as acceptable in other areas of the world or in other areas of society. And I think when it's not recorded, when it just exists in that moment, it's more pure. But when the camera is turned on them, uh, that is when the sort of uh, voyeuristic part started for me because one thing I also had an issue with is there was a, a cross player who was doing Sailor Saturn and this cross player did not to me I mean they didn't have any makeup on I was like honey honey a little lip a little lip a little foundation like a little give us something but you know the costume wasn't revealing it the wig wasn't terrible I mean it was just you know someone cross playing as Sailor Saturn and I was like you know what okay that's fine and then the the way it's framed in the documentary is, is God, people even they even cross dress here. Can you imagine some some man in a dress? And then they interview the person. They're like, Yeah, you know, I'm a voyeur for attention, or I'm a glutton for attention, or whatever. You know, very good natured about it, but just the way the documentary framed it, like it's like uh, this is very early two thousands where we're still like we're, the idea of queer people existing among us was still like a scandalous thought. Um, and I had an issue with that, and the way they framed talking to the woman at the the Yaoi Con, like it was very much like, God, can you imagine these women are attracted to homosexuals? Uh, what does this say about where Western civilization is going? Like they look at these images of scantily clad men touching each other. Like God, it's so. I was just like, my dude, gays exist. <laughs> like where have you been? You go to film school. I mean, yeah, I think that's yeah. fair, but I think this is this is very much of its time. Again, you you mentioned the people, uh, you know, cosplaying as characters of other genders like that. Not that it wasn't done, and not that it was was as they mentioned a very male dominated space. You're going to have them cosplaying as female characters since those are usually more interesting anyway. But like that was something that really wasn't, at least didn't feel like it was like publicly done. It was something to sort of be surprised at i'm shocked at to some degree uh talk about yaoi but again yeah like talking about anime porn was not really a thing that 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 we're not really as open about as we are now you know you go to a con and there's ahagal shirts and you can just walk up to the booth with uh you know the hentai stuff but that that was something to be shocked and surprised at so i can very much see why that was included in this documentary uh this is definitely not as progressive a time as we are now in in 2020 
You know, I would really like to see a documentary about like queer fans at general conventions, like anime conventions, because I mean, I have met many people in my life who are like, yeah, I one of the things I liked about anime cons was I could express my gender more freely, or I right. could be open about being in a in a uh, homosexual, bisexual. Uh, whatever relationship because you know as much as I complain about how yaoi is a complicated subject that's my final word on the matter it's complicated because of things like you know female fans really liking yaoi it made anime cons a safer space overall for gay fans to come in because of the freedom of cosplay in general the masquerade the carnivalesque it made it a more tolerant place for gender non-conforming people or transgender people to go and dress how they please in that in that environment and i wish i kind of wish the documentary could have understood that but like i said it was of its right. time yeah. um yeah. i can only i can only begrudge it so much but i think there is something there i mean i go oh, to cons sure. now and there are actual drag queens in cosplay not yeah. people who are just doing crossplay and they only you know cosplay at cons as a way of doing a, a gender exploration but people who like oh i perform as a drag queen but i crossplay and do like a drag version of crossplay when i go to cons like i think there's something there but i guess oh. i watched this and i was just like again my dude gay people exist yeah, yeah. no absolutely and i i yeah. would I, I completely agree that i would love to see somebody do a documentary or explore more about uh, that because i've certainly heard from from uh, you know more than a few trans people that have sort of started to come out and uh, like i guess awaken to sort of how they feel and how they identify through cosplaying characters of other genders mm -hmm. uh, there's absolutely mm -hmm. a thing that is uh, it's not an uncommon trend yeah sure. I, I think it would be it, you would be hugely amiss to say that the connection between uh that the presence of the queer community in the anime community is inextricable because so many people that create it consume it write about it comment on it identify as lgbt in one way or another so it's like that is kind of just just the norm it's an everyday thing and i think that watching this documentary you would think that it was something other than that but again of course the difference between you know the 2010s and yeah. the early 2000s from this very mostly male and largely heteronormative perspective that this documentary has Maybe I'll make that documentary myself if I ever learn how to, like, not film with my phone. But yeah, this documentary, I, again, I can also only begrudge Bressler because he does seem to be an outsider. And I'm sure if you were to take me, if I had the skills of being a documentarian, and you sent me somewhere I was not aware of, like a subculture, I'm sure I would probably gravitate toward the things I find the most lascivious or shocking or different from everyday life like for us like kind of growing up in the anime community like at least all of us have at least gone to cons for a decade or more uh like yaoi hentai uh crossplay uh, cosplay in general is just such a no big deal for us like I mean, I have friends who are like, oh, yeah, I'm buying a wig. And like, I'm sure other people are like, why would anyone buy a wig? I'm like, yeah, they're probably cosplaying or like, you know, doing drag or, you know, maybe they just like wigs. Maybe they like J fashion. Like it's so, it doesn't even register as different for us. So there is a, that sort of like, we're so immersed in our own community that certain things, like I have to remember sometimes when I talk to people who are 
if I might use that dreaded term, normies, like I might say something, I'm like, oh wait, you don't know what that is. I forget that not everyone lives the same life and is in the same subcultures as I am. So I might have to back up and explain, or they might be a little put off where I'm like, yeah, a friend of mine bought a blue wig the other day. And they're like, why would they do that? And I'm like, oh wait, you don't really know what this is, or you, this is not an everyday occurrence for you. There's some political commentary that's in the works about this whole uh, cosplay thing. Some of the people that are running it kind of uh, rink with the stench of hypocrisy. Kind of a final note on sort of the perspective that this documentary takes, but from a from a very different perspective. I was reading through the uh, Anime News Network review of Otaku Unite from 2004, and this was written by Bamboo Dong, who is still with the site today, very active. And she sort of along towards the end of the documentary sort of points out one of the things we pointed out earlier, and she says, quote, even though the video was recently made, it already feels dated. All of the video clips it uses are largely from old school shows, and all the mentions of anime that are made are for the more popular series like Sailor Moon and Ranma One Half. Still, with something growing as rapidly as anime is in the U.S., it comes as no shock that anything would become outdated so fast. So I do find that really interesting that even watching this in 2004... She already saw this as dated based on essentially what is profiled in the documentary. Because you see a lot about the early days of anime. You see them talk about Robotech and Speed Racer and things like that. But they don't really delve into much of the contemporary stuff. And even at this time, Sailor Moon was a little bit on the older side. I mean, they talk about Toonami a little bit. But it is very skewed, skewed to the history which is interesting and i think that is probably what bressler himself was probably more interested in because he did in the commentary talk about his affinity for robotech so i just i found that interesting well i don't know if I you think, guys had anything to think about that i think there's two reasons why there's so much older material is probably because one it was probably easier to either get an agreement to do to get those shows like battle of the planets or robotech than to get newer stuff um and and second um because he wasn't kind of within the fandom he probably was not up to date with what was the big thing at the time because if this was 2001 2002 um probably the big things at the time were i'm uh, tell me if i'm wrong it would be like cowboy bebop and trigun probably yeah, so this is the point where I realized that I'm the only one that actually watched the credits of this movie, because they do mention that there is archival footage that is um, that they they credit to a couple people, including Dave Merrill, Walter Amos, and Lawrence Ng, who I think Sully at least is aware of. So I, all the- yes, I am very aware of Lawrence. I yeah. will have to text him and be like, wait. What did you do? <laughs> so, uh, and there, there are like they they do like copyright credits in the the end, but it is pretty apparent 
you know, kind of well, putting putting the pieces together, that a lot of that footage was just provided by some of the people they interviewed. And mm. I didn't see Lawrence in there, but he probably, I know he's a big part of the fandom. He probably, you know, he, if you're listening now, I'm, I'm just supposing, maybe you can correct us, you know, feel free, of course, that, you know, maybe the same open call that led Johnny Otaku to uh, Bresler's doors, maybe uh, led Lawrence to uh, submit some footage. And, uh, you know, Walter Amos wasn't in here either, but he's another big name fan from the Atlanta area. I believe the Atlanta area uh, usually hangs out at AWA. So um, yeah, I'm sure they provided if nothing else, the star blazers footage. And that's where I feel like we, we mentioned earlier how it looked a little weird when they talk about some of the, uh, they talk about anime having really melodramatic storylines and they show a part in star blazers where it's just, you know, I'm going to turn you into scrap <laughs> some very basic stuff. <laughs> but I do, I do feel like when you look at that and also the fact that this was turned are uh, done on what I imagine was a relatively small budget for a student project, they probably went with any footage they could get. And mm. they certainly weren't going to be paying out the nose for, you know, what was it at the time? Like you said, Trigon, Cowboy Bop. Uh, they probably weren't going to pay to license that stuff when Gundam they could just win. get. Yeah. I mean, they probably, I don't think at that point, Battle of the Planets and Star Blazers, uh, they were probably, if nothing else, tied up in licensing hell. So they probably would not have been worried about getting sued. Because <laughs> <laughs> all they had to do was take uh, so these older, older fans, uh, old archival tapes and whatnot. So that's probably why the the anime itself, the footage feels so dated. Uh, I'll have to, I'll have to ask him. I wonder if like maybe someone like Lawrence, like they reached out to him or vice versa, and they did like yeah. a sit down interview, talking head thing, and then they just didn't use it. Um, Possibly, yeah. Because there is again former podcast guest Helen McCarthy is featured in here, but she only gets like maybe two minutes of footage and then they don't use her anymore. And it kind of feels like there had to have been more. I'm sure they didn't just like mm -hmm. grab her on a corner to come be like, Hey, give us like, Oof, say something, say, yeah. speak, perform. And, um, I'm sure. And former they... podcast guest, Robert Woodhead. Yes. I mean, and that's a bit of a disappointment for me because you have Helen McCarthy, you have Frederick Schote, you have uh, Carl Masick, you have uh, Robert Woodhead, you have these important people. You have Dave Merrill, who, like, even back then was not a, a small deal. He was still important in the fandom, um, at least very important in AWA. And it kind of feels like they're there a little bit, and then we follow Johnny Otaku, and I'm like, <laughs> there has to be more. There has to be more of these people who I feel like are more informative, are more interesting to watch on camera, are more... Uh, informed about what this thing is and why people love it and instead we follow the man who has a 30 minute slot at his community college radio station called the sushi bar which i find weirdly charming it was in that weird <laughs> period in the in like the late 90s and early 2000s where we just thought japan was karaoke sushi and godzilla and we had like literally no other cultural references to use like we had to draw from those three things anytime we referenced japan um <laughs> I will say they do use the um, those kind of more expert um, personalities pretty well. Like all the sections with Fred Patton, I think are still very informative today, even if they are kind of general, because he was one of the earliest anime fans in America and started the technically the first anime club in um I think California. Uh, 
so, and just his his talking about fandom and Helen McCarthy talking about how Fred and others like him were doing archiving at the time. I think that part is still really interesting, and I would love to read a book about that, or even a a, a, a mini or a small documentary about that. <laughs> Made all the more tragic that we just recently lost Fred Patton. Um, one or two years ago, I can't recall offhand, but it was mm -hmm. really... Fortunately, we do have a lot of his writing. We have his book, uh, Watching Anime, Reading Manga. And I don't know. I just felt like, again, there was this, this feeling of the sideshow that I felt could have very easily been avoided. Because I'm like, I know you didn't talk to Helen McCarthy for only two minutes. I know you didn't talk to um, Dave Merrill for two minutes. Like, I know there was probably more and probably a better through line with their interviews than following this guy around and laughing at his cosplay contest entry. I, I just felt like there was like, again, it was like, there's a huge chunk of information here that I feel like has to have been cut at some point. Right. I feel like this is kind of a pearls before swine situation where, you know, he didn't know, I don't think he quite got the enormity of getting, uh, you know, he, he knew, he knew Masick, you know, but we have Patton, we have McCarthy, we have all these important people that to us as anime fans, even then super, super important people. But not really realizing that that's where the story was hmm. thinking that if the story was okay here's the eccentric you know weirdos the uh, the guys in cosplay whereas we kind of ignore you know the actual historians these important people yeah. and not realizing that it was going to be such a big deal even 20 years later or they talked to carl horn who's been at dark horse for like a, uh, a long time where he's been their manga editor where he briefly talks about speed racer for like five minutes and then he comes back near the end of this like well, what will the future will be and that's a real shame because of his expertise and how long he's been working with dark horse to publish manga i would love to hear his take on things but they don't really talk to him that long i think we'd be remiss too if we didn't point out that they also got peter fernandez and Corey or um, the original yeah. voices of Speed Racer and Trixie to be in this documentary too. And Peter Fernandez, we lost him also in, in 2010. Um, so this is probably one of the last uh, interview things he did other than probably doing the junket for the Speed Racer movie when he had that cameo. Um, Corey Noor is still alive, but she's 84 at this point when I looked it up. Yeah. So, I mean, we got some interesting people here and it just feels like, again, I could probably watch an entire documentary about either of them and their careers. <laughs> Um, or just them at a con, like you did this show so long ago and it still resonates with people. It's still a part of the cultural zeitgeist, at least for the subculture. Like, what is that like? What is it like to go to a con and this thing that you probably didn't think would really go anywhere, this, you know, a cartoon probably going to air, you know, a few years and then go away. And now it's this, you know, part of the pop culture lexicon of the United States. Like, there's probably a story there. But again, I just feel like maybe maybe the real issue here is the director wrestler just bit off more than he can chew mm. uh, yeah i think that's true because i think we've all sort of outlined some really excellent things that this documentary does some of the very interesting people that it profiles and involves in the story of anime in the united states or you know largely in, or in the larger western world rather but um it seems like it was just kind of off track but it's uh, or excuse me it was like on the right track but sort of just fell off and I think I, I think that that track falling off would be so much less like harsh in this documentary if they did not spend so much time 
with Johnny Otaku and Steve Bennett, who are just not the most interesting picks that they could have gone with. But I also do kind of like you all know that I'm a huge appreciator of anime. I, I try and approach it from a very, very uh, media studies slash academic perspective. But I think there is also merit in profiling the average fan, profiling the attendee and sort of like showing what the casual person is really there for and really connecting that to a spirit of passion that really brings all of us to the same place whether you approach it approach it from an academic or a historical perspective or just from a casual entertainment perspective and i think that story deserves to be told and i think this kind of tries to tell it but it's like it, it does it so messy they they talk to other fans but they're very brief glimpses they don't do any deep dives into kind of more average fans than just Johnny Otaku. And that's um, one thing that I was th- I was thinking, if this documentary were going to be made today and it wasn't going to be made by somebody or a team who was really invested in really the story and history of anime and telling why that's important, I think it would be all sort of maybe not as extreme, but it would be mostly Johnny Otaku types or mostly like english voice actors sort of what we see being put on a pedestal at most conventions sort of broadly i think that's kind of what it looked like it might not feature the fred shots of the world or the helen mccarthy's or the fred fred patton's that exist right now and i think that's kind of a shame but it also sort of just points to the fact that fandom is so much bigger now it's It's, like and it's and it's much more diverse I think if this was made today, I I would like to hear more from um, people in the LGBT community. I would like to hear uh, more women voices. Yes, and and their and their take on on anime fandom and their relationship with it. Like Um, really, the only the only woman that's featured prominently in the documentary is Trish Ledoux, and she's really not even in it that much. A very important person in the history of anime in the United States, and she just, you know, she probably gets the most talking head shots out of any woman in there. It's probably her, Helen, and Corey Noor, and that that's it. That's our woman. That's our female representation, guys, and the the mm-hmm. one adult actress who, again, they're like, she's like, I love anime fans because they like computers, and I'm like, this, this feels <laughs> this feels like you put this in there as a gag. It's the same way they had the guy who's like, he goes to every Hooters and has a picture taken with the waitresses, oh, and they all love anime. I'm like, sir, was this necessary? This that, is this is in love that, that, that thing where they interview the, the pornographic actress, that just feels like, hey, we're at this convention, can you just say something into the camera, please? And she's I and will she, say though, that sweater she, she was wearing was a look. I like that sweater. <laughs> <laughs> that's what Sully has like, to say on the on her whole appearances. Love that sweater. I mean, you are getting a a look at your talent. <laughs> <laughs> I have to warn you that Hooters with Steve is like it, it's a religion. It's like a three to four hour experience each time.
can we talk about um, kind of their predictions? Because uh, it's, it's kind of funny looking back at this uh, now and seeing the predictions. Like when we were talking about the Yaoi Con, how they were kind of like, well, there's going to be a bunch of <laughs> sub-genre conventions that'll pop up in the future that'll cover other topics. Um, which I, I found kind of hilarious now because everything has yeah. become so much more of a generalist con perspective because that's how you get the more um, butts into the convention hall. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, this all kind of started coming out of sci-fi conventions. Uh, you know, the first anime cons were, were there because they wanted their own space. The sci-fi cons weren't really giving them their space. So, all right, we'll do our own thing with, with Japanese cartoons. And, you know, here it sort of predicts, you know, we'll get even more types of cons. We'll get even more specific cons of particular shows. And I'm aware that they did, there was like a, um, I want to say either a Star Blazers con or a Robotech sort of con way back in the 80s and the early days. But aside from Yaoi Con that they mentioned here, that really hasn't been the case. We've really had more of a, uh, what we call a con convergence, especially over the past 10, 15 years with uh, cons coming back together and doing more general purpose, you know, all purpose pop culture conventions. It's, I have... uh, it's very rare that you've got things like Animazement and even to, to a lesser degree, AWA, that specifically focuses on the Japanese aspect. I have sort of a theory behind that. What's your theory? Oh, <laughs> I have sort of a theory behind that. And I think it is kind of a historical thing. So again, anime cons are sort of born out of sci-fi cons that would not give them the space. There was always, from what I've read, an antagonistic relationship between anime fans and general science fiction fans. And I think because anime cons, for better or worse, became sort of the ur-con, like science fiction conventions were so... Uh, male centered and so like they were just so themselves the anime cons which tend to draw more women tend to draw more diverse crowds tend to draw more diverse ages because of that that kind of allowed for anime cons to become the breeding ground for the sort of resurgence of the general con that we're seeing now and I think just the fact that anime cons have been so accessible to the right audiences like teenagers college kids young adults like people who usually don't have a lot of money but who have a lot of passion, a lot of energy. I think that is what's made them become the sort of ground for the, the general con again, is because science fiction conventions, it's kind of like how the American comic industry is kind of destroying itself. It, they've become places for IP mining. They've become places where you have to go to specific comic shops to get comics. They're not just in grocery stores and drugstores and stuff like that anymore. Like they've become so walled into their sort of like, these are the people we want in our community that they have basically become stagnant in terms of growth and anime cons because I mean, most nerds are not just into anime. They're into other things. Things are somewhat anime adjacent, like, Avatar, The Last Airbender, is not anime. We must have this discussion every month, apparently. <laughs> but it is anime adjacent. People who like anime will probably like that. Or they'll probably like uh, some other thing. Or maybe they have different fandoms and like that's why we get Doctor Who cosplayers and, uh, you know, Avatar cosplayers and 
for whatever godforsaken reason, we get Hamilton sing-alongs at Triad <laughs> Anime Con. Like these things, That's like even though, even though that infuriates me beyond any reason, I do think anime <laughs> should be centered at an Anime Con, or at least Japanese or East Asian culture should be like centered because people have other interests and they're gonna bring them in and Anime Cons are more receptive to them bringing it in and giving them that space. That's why they're allowed to become these sort of general things is because Anime Cons have been more flexible, more accessible, and more welcoming. I feel more welcome at an anime con than I have at a con that's more general pop culture or like a comic con. I feel like a fish out of order there because I'm like, these people just do not feel like they're on my vibe. But uh, I think a lot of it, now that I think about it, is definitely an age age gap thing. We've got, um, you know, sci-fi cons have always been very much the old guard. The sci-fi community has always been about, you know, uh, older fans arguing about novels and whatnot. And like you mentioned, comics has sort of become this, this uh, it's transitioned from being something that any kid could just jump into, could pick up an issue of Spider-Man, Superman, whatever, and just enjoy it to being this very, uh, you know, I want to say like canonical, you know, you have to know these stories, you have to know this character. There's very regimented, there's very dogmatic rules about uh, comic characters and the superheroes. And just like sci-fi, uh, the average age of a comic fan has only gone up. And during this period, you had this new thing, anime, that, that sure other old, older fans were enjoying as well. And they were bringing into the, into the, into the fandom as a whole. But uh, the general age was going down uh, every year. You've got uh, more stuff showing on TV with Robotech, uh, with Dragon Ball Z and Sailor Moon. Then Toonami shows up and these kids can just watch stuff uh, every day, these entire stories. And it's only made things more accessible for a younger audience, which I think really both the inherent popularity of anime plus how accessible it was for a younger audience definitely created the surge of, of, uh, of the anime fandom in the 90s and the 2000s. Uh, that's something I kind of mentioned in my my history panels is that that there, there definitely has been a, uh, lowering aver a lower average age as time has gone on. I will also say, I think anime as a community, it just has a different vibe to it. Like I said, like when I think of the interactions I've had with like comics fans, they tend to be very like, this is not for kids. This is serious. Batman is serious. Like I, I'm an adult. This is fine. You're not treating this with the respect. And then anime fans, like as much as they can drive me crazy with anime is trash. It's like kids, the stuff you like is not trash. The fact they are more like relaxed about it. They kind of realize like when anime gets ridiculous or when it gets kitschy, and they're more okay with it. I think. I mean, just look at the popularity, popularity of JoJo's, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. I mean, that's essentially all that that is. It's just absurdism. But people don't treat it like, oh man, JoJo's the serious thing. It's just like, no, it is silly and goofy, and that's why we love it. Like there are a lot of older anime fans from what I've seen. They were really trying to push that anime is more serious and realistic and what have you. And certain anime is. I mean, you have Akira, which I think is a brilliant piece of filmmaking that is this deep and layered and full of richly articulated text. And then you have Yatterman, which is absolutely bonkers and dumb. <laughs> and I love it. And I think that anime is both of those things. And I think anime fans are a little, especially now, more open to that. They're like, there's really serious anime that tackles complicated societal themes. And then there's goofy stuff like Jojo, which probably has some 
stuff we could read about it, but it's mostly absurdism and goofy and fun and it's just yeah. happy. And I think that's something that lacks a lot of comics fandoms now. Like it's still that sort of, you know, pardon my French, it's nerd boy dick measuring contest. Like Batman can beat Superman, Batman's real. Like Batman, no, there can be no silly costumes. There can't be people wearing purple suits with canes. No, they have to be gritty and realistic because my dad makes fun of me still. It's like, God. <laughs> I, 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 for one, am waiting for the Taku Unite Snyder cut. <laughs> <laughs> are, we, are, 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 we, are we supposed to be talking about a documentary? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess the one, one thing I do want to mention there is we talk about uh, the way these, these fandoms have been transitioned over time. But I do feel like we're at a point where anime fandom could go the same way. Is it going to be uh, a bunch of older fans just arguing about, you know, Yatterman and JoJo's Bizarre Adventure? Or are we going to leave enough space for the younger audience to jump in? And if the younger audience is into Avatar and Steven Universe and other non-anime works, uh, I think it is important to give them the space, maybe not at anime conventions, but it is important, I think, to give them the space to explore those fandoms and continue the spirit of what we do, if not exactly the letter. I don't, I don't know, Tobias, because before the pandemic hit, just going to your average convention, the the average age of the convention you go are at anime cons is still rather young. Um, yeah. Unless you're going to a much bigger convention like your Otakons or your AWAs of the world, the the average con across the United States is going to be young. Um, where I think yeah, a lot no, of the, I, where I the older agree. fan base is much more concentrated on the internet. Oh, for sure. Um, I guess my, my I don't think it's really hit that. Um, that part yet it, but i do think it's it's definitely going to hit a point where we as older fans do need to sort of make way and let them explore these spaces and their own rather than try to gatekeep yeah and hold, to make hold it, the gate open is, rather than keeping it shut exactly exactly and that's something i do you know on the one hand i i do want to vouch for the the, you know, the purity like what technically is anime you know we, we we pretty much get into the 2020 version of the whole carl Masick robotech debate like mm -hmm. do we really want to i think there's a happy medium between vouching for the purity and the history of these works but also allowing them to have maybe a loosey, a more loose interpretation, or more loose um, interpretation of the fandom I, for a lot of these people. And that, this, and might, that, this, and, might, this might be just semantic, but I would push back against the word maybe purity and maybe, maybe, talk, maybe use the phrase like distinct cultural Japanese-ness of anime as an yeah. art form rather than the p yeah. word maybe. I, I guess I guess I, I you can't really see it on the podcast, but I was doing air quotes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I tried to push the air quotes. <laughs> no, I knew I knew what you period. were trying to get at. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it certainly is not the actual. You know, Macross is the only pure version. You know, how dare <laughs> Robotech exist? But I feel like you can both have the opinion that Robotech was very important to the proliferation of the fandom, but also. It's not great compared to Macross. Yeah, exactly. And adult fans should go watch Macross and not Robotech. At yeah, that time, I, it was very important. Yeah, I, I, I think, think for me, should, the um, happy medium uh, is uh, kind of... I'm sorry, Bill. Go ahead. No, no. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'll be brief. I would just say um, is to not shut down the fans that are just into Steven Universe or Avatar The Last Airbender because those shows yeah. can be gateways 
to mm-hmm. anime in quotation marks proper. Um, yeah, that's that's my point. One thing I learned uh, when I mean, just as someone who studies literature uh, for their for their education is I found that like saying you don't know X is is very off putting, but saying, oh, you don't know it this, is. you're yeah. in for a treat. Like, if you like this, you'll like this, too. Or maybe you won't, but, like, it's worth a shot. Like, I found that doing that is a lot more conducive to getting what you want, which is getting people to get into the things you are, than saying, oh, how dare you not know this? And I think that's where my issue is, because I think... Okay, one, no Hamilton sing-alongs. I'm just going to say that. That's my (laughs) hill I'm going to die on. No Hamilton (laughs) sing-alongs. However, if there are some kids cosplaying Hamilton at a con i'm not going to begrudge them i mean it's they're not hurting anybody like maybe that this is the only place they can do it um i think our i think our central distinction is making the point that what we are critiquing is not fan behavior but convention like priority right i think the priority should if it's an anime con the the uh focus the priority should be anime manga and surrounding Japanese cultural artifacts like J-pop or things Kaiju. related to same, right? And yeah. keeping the general con feeling open, though. Like, I mean, there's Batman cosplayers at anime cons, and no one throws a fit. I think people get mad when the new thing comes in. People are mad at Steven Universe or Avatar cosplayers or whatever the new not anime Western property was. And I think I've met some old older fans at cons, and a lot of them have been delightful. They are like fonts of information and they're wonderful and then there's some people where i believe just want to go it's like you know i know you look like a fossil but you don't have to act like one too like okay calm down it's fine the kids are fine the con is fine this is fine relax (laughs) well there there are people that base their identity on their fandom and a convention going can be a fandom so uh, there is definitely you know quote unquote purity uh to that I just I and I don't really mean to like to say we should definitely make space here. We should definitely bow down to the the younger generations. I just think it's a conversation that we as a community are if not already have started having, need to be having over the next 10 years as the anime fans, you know, we the what now second third generation sort of fans get older and we who've grown up in conventions and seen problems with other conventions and what we love as part of these events. Maybe you just try to be better for the future. I don't know. That's just, uh, it's just kind of an open, open conversation. I think that. I will still say I want the 21 and up con so I can drink my breakfast mimosa and discuss the finer points of Lum with actual sophisticates like myself. <laughs> Good luck with that one. It'll happen. My old roommate in undergrad, he had this brilliant idea for a 21 and up grocery store slash bar. And if we can do that with a con, I think it could work. <laughs> only only if the drinks are named after anime characters. So you go and you don't get a mimosa, you get a Goku.
this documentary is called Otaku Unite, and at the very start of the documentary, or at least after the kaiju battle part, uh, we have Dave Merrill say, Of course, when you tell people what otaku means and the connotations thereof, they're like, well, um, this is America, this isn't Japan, so we can make it mean whatever we want. I'm like, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. And I'd like to point out, actually, that is how words work. Uh, words change meaning all the time, and I have quite a few articles I can lead you to, Dave Merrill, that talk about the use of the word otaku in the Western sphere and how it is not necessarily... Okay, I'm going to go on my English major rant. Um, but Bill, you pointed out that otaku is not a commonly used word anymore, and I think that's something that's worth discussing and exploring. Yeah, I... Um... I, I've heard, I knew of the word otaku when I got into fandom, but it wasn't something that was kind of told to me, like, you should wear this proudly. I think it was a kind of a revisionist uh, view of the word of the, at that time where people were starting to realize, like, oh, that's a bad derogatory word um, now, where I think now it's usually just either you're just an anime fan or a manga fan or maybe uh the derogatory word now would be like weeb would be the derogatory word yeah i think that's the thing it's just like whenever it's like otaku whenever i was entering into this phase it's like otaku was something i would see used never really like verbally it was always something i would read but people like in my day-to-day -day social functions like talking about anime and stuff you would either just say i'm an anime fan and then later on weeaboo came along and that was also very a derogatory thing that you did not use in a positive connotation for a while and then it sort of got rebranded as like oh yes i'm a weeb in the sense of like um kind of in the way that some people think about otaku it's just like a thing that used to mean something really bad that you would use to make fun of people and then it's sort of become like vernacular for like a slightly tongue-in-cheek way to call yourself an anime fan yeah otaku was that was back in the days of you know speaking a few sentences in broken japanese that you learned from anime to make yourself look cool Watashi yeah, wa otaku des. yeah this is like back in the day of those awful looking for a japanese girlfriend t-shirts uh, <laughs> that you'd see people wear at conventions uh, uh, basic basic ass white guys <laughs> wear at conventions this sort of thing where calling yourself this uh, foreign term and it is very much the sort of johnny otaku thing it was this this guy that these people that are so into the community in and of itself rather than looking looking at how it looks or even trying to you know analyze or even think about the uh, image they're projecting you know it's just that was just part of it that was just part of being proud of your nerd heritage um, and, and i i guess i just have a problem with this whole it is a bad word in japan because it's like it it's a complicated word in yeah, japan that has yeah. its own history and was not even the term used for a while it was maniac before that and I think just saying the sort of flat, it's a bad word in Japan, stop calling yourself that, also takes away the power of loan words. There are words in Japan that are loan words from us that don't even mean the same thing anymore. They have, we have false friends in Japanese, as they call it. And I think otaku had the potential to be the word that was reclaimed and remixed into American culture to mean anime fan and could mean a positive thing, especially as Japan embraced the cool Japan thing and started saying, yeah, okay, otaku are okay, you know, they're smart. They're weird, but they know a lot of stuff, so they're useful to our to our ends. Um, and I I still have that feeling of 
when people that I, you know, normies ask me about my hobbies, I will usually just say I'm an anime fan. That means I collect figures, I collect Blu-rays and DVDs, I read books about the subculture and, and the making of anime in the industry. When I am with people like you guys, um, who I feel like are more in the know and like are on a certain level of fandom with me, I used to say, you know, we're all otaku here. We're all people yeah. who, yeah. Um, the appeal of Japanese culture is still kind of something that makes us salivate. I'm reading um, Matt Alt's book, Pure Invention, right now. And even the idea of otaku as something, we're all kind of becoming people who are these techno-savvy uh, dwellers of virtual worlds who use escapism. Like, I think all human beings in the age of social media are kind of becoming otakunized in both good and bad ways. I think it's a complicated word that has a lot more historical nuance than mm -hmm. the sort of glibe way of saying it back in 2006. And even when I was getting into the community in the in 2010 as it's a bad word, don't call yourself that. That's how you kind of out yourself as a, as a, as a green fan. Um, and as for Weeb... Or coming off across as too eager. Right. Which is a whole thing. Whole like, other we, thing. We, yes. we as a society just hate eagerness. Eagerness <laughs> is bad. Passion bad. Um, and then the term Weeaboo, which um, I use kind of in a way it's like, God, Weebs. Like, people who are either being bad or it's like a, <laughs> like... Like, if I, like, am going to hang out with Austin and I go, like, what up, Weeb? Like, you yep. know... Yep. As it's you just do. how as, as we talk and i you know it's weird that was the term that was supposed to be this is bad fans and now it's just you know fans in general and it's the whole complicated should we trash talk ourselves or not um these words have histories and that's what makes them complicated and i wish that was well I, I think i mean that's part of it though. that's part of the history and i think it's something that mm -hmm. even i don't necessarily think dave says it outright but there's something that both knowing sort of his views on the way the community is and also knowing how the japanese communities has evolved like you know he dave talks later in the documentary about when they bring up cosplay and how um you know there's definitely cosplay is definitely the most present aspect of the fandom it is definitely very popular but not everyone loves cosplay and Dave has talked very openly about having to sit through the masquerade at AWA for several years until they turned into five hour affairs and being done with cosplay. And by the time this documentary came out, fandom was turning to cosplay as the main face of, of everything. And you look at someone like him who's watched these older shows, who's focused more on sort of the, the AV nerd aspect more so than the dress up and convention or had costume aspect and the way that parallels to the Japanese fandom. So the original maniacs were very much uh, about like production facts, about um, special effects used, about, you know, the animation itself and, and then even the sci-fi aspects of the stories and delving into what is very much something that is uh, you, we, we've already talked about it talking in the video like that is that is very much the older style of anime fan and then you get into like the, the mid 90s uh right after like ava came out and then you have otaku dumb became more like hikikomori you have more focused on these moe characters you have the conversations about which is the best girl uh, it wasn't about, you know, what 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 stats does this Veritech fighter have as Valkyrie? You know, how what's the missile payload? You know, who did the, uh, you know, the Itano Circus? You know, who drew these episodes? It was who's the best girl, 
and likewise you have that in japan and you have the older fans sort of have railed against it you have miyazaki you have ano who's talked about how that's negative and i mean hell we could talk all day about how the fandom surrounding ava uh drew ano to sort of rail against that in end of ava including some of that hate mail that he got that's all part of it and to mirror that in otaku unite it's just cosplay instead of the more hikikomori aspects. You've got this older fan group that is that consider themselves like the OG, the original, you know, fans, and they see a new generation that is not expressing themselves in the same way. And I think it's a, some a level of frustration that you see these older fans that are really into the tech, that are really into, you know. Uh, finding copies of this stuff and watching this stuff and sharing, sharing new, uh, new works and translating these new works and talking about it. And you see these newer kids that are just want to cosplay and just want to dress up like their characters. And uh, one of the, I think it's the first volume of the colony drop scene. I don't know if it was Helen McCarthy, but it was somebody in the UK section. I'll have to like, look it up and put it in the show notes. Uh, there's a, a, quote that i don't think i will ever forget where to, to paraphrase you know our fandom was sitting in a small cramped hotel room at a small staring at a small tv watching a japanese audio anime that no one could understand for the sake of it but this new generation was all about dressing up and looking at each other and I don't want to make that value judgment, which is which is better, which is more pure, which is a better expression of fandom. But this documentary focuses on that transition. And you do have the old guard seeing the new guard. And I think the word otaku and the transition, the meaning, the evolution of it, like you said, Sully, sort of does come up in this time frame where you've got these newer fans like Johnny Otaku, who are super excited. They're just happy to be there that are using this term as a, an identity, an expression of their fandom. But you've got the older fans that have lived through these, these more awkward times that see it for the uh, dirty word that it, it has been. And can we retake that word and make it better? Sure. We, we talk about weeaboo. Weeaboo is an entirely internet era word. It came from a Perry Bible Fellowship comic. It was a word filter on 4chan and has turned into both something, like we mentioned, uh, an insult, but also sort of a playful, uh, a playful word, just like nerd has. Like nerd has been a negative term, but people have sort of recaptured that into something a little more playful and you know, it is, it's cool to be a weeb now. <laughs> it's cool to be an otaku, a weeb, an anime fan, whatever term you want to say. It's, uh, it's definitely more in the mainstream now than it ever has been. Bias, I could listen to you talk about this all day. Oh, yeah, well, I was pretty much done. I was, I, I really, I, I, oh, no, I wasn't, I wasn't making a joke. I was like being completely legitimate. I could listen to you talk about this yeah. all day. No, I mean, I, I, I've, I've got, I do have thoughts and like, could have tying this back in what I said about leaving space for the for the younger fans i you know not to sort of fanboy over too much about dave merrill specifically but like he's been the public head for anime fandom since i've been going to conventions you know i remember going and seeing anime hell back in 2004 i've done that every year since so like i've sort of followed sort of in 
what he's said about uh, cosplay, the cosplay community, and what other people have said and the transition between generations to another. And that is something I worry about myself. Like, I very much want to talk about anime and Japanese culture. I do care a lot about production facts and, uh, you know, the people that made Evangelion, for instance, my favorite thing, the best anime ever made. Uh, haha. But I do think that younger fans are going to find new aspects. Like, you'd have cosplay, but it's a lot more casual now than it we see even here on Otaku Unite. Like, are we still going to care so much about cosplay or is that going to go away here in a few years i do feel like maybe we've hit a peak for what cosplay is again it is still very present very um it's it's definitely the face of the fandom and it's very easy for anyone to get into but i guess i guess what i'm trying to say is i kind of want to make sure we leave enough space because i don't want to i don't want to be the guy trying to argue like this isn't legit you know in 10 years and I, this might actually need to be cut from the podcast because I could go on. But like, I also find it very fascinating. Like, what are the outside of the anime fandom? What are the the cultural, like, larger global cultural trends that cause these changes? Like, okay, we had the Hikikomori like responding to Ava, but like Ava came out right during the bubble bursting, like in the yep. '90s. Like, okay, mm-hmm. December of 1989, or no, December of '90 is when the bubble burst in Japan. So these kids are probably depressed. Like. Why is like so much of the sad boy aesthetic in anime now on like Twitter and stuff? Well, look at what's going on. Like anime is a useful uh, expression of current. I mean, this goes back to like the leftists, you know, saying we have our leftist newsletter in one hand and our Shonen Jump in the or our Shonen Sunday in the other. Like this, these things feed on each other. And you talk about cosplay becoming more casual. Well, people don't have money anymore. Like our disposable income is is becoming less and less and uh, reactions to like body positivity and like comfort levels and like the more that cosplays become sexualized and people maybe don't want to feel like that's something they're partaking in like these are all larger cultural conversations that will yeah. then inform the subculture that's i'd love to read about like how has cosplay at, just cosplay changed in the united states as perceptions of cosplay have changed uh economic situations have changed like as one person told me, it's like people don't do cosplay that much anymore because it just costs too much money. And it became like you couldn't cosplay like these people do where it's kind of, you know, Halloween costumes here. You have to be good or else people are going to make fun of you on the Internet or you have to be sexy and not everyone wants to do that. Like those are larger trends that will inform that. Like why did AMVs kind of die off? Who knows? Is it because editing software became too complicated? Was it? Uh, taste and music change there could be something larger that informs the subcultural aspect nothing is ever just one thing for sure and we're all gonna die eventually but we will enjoy some japanese cartoons before we do if i had to go through life without knowing lum before i pass it would not have been worth living (laughs) my my life is more enriched now seeing hatsune miku (laughs) So we've talked a lot about this documentary, about the changes in anime fandom, about our own predictions of where the fandom is going to go. Guys, I'm going to go one by one. If each of you had to like do a one sentence takeaway from this documentary or a one sentence review, what would it be? We're going to start with you, Bill. Um, this documentary is a time capsule of anime at a particular time before it became more reserved more commercialized and when it was a bit um goofier i'm not saying that's the best way that anime convention should be 
but it was how it was at a particular time. And I, I, I would just describe this documentary as a time capsule. How about you, Austin? If you're asking me, should I watch this or should I not watch this? I think you should watch this. But just keep in mind exactly everything that we've said about how it is very much a time capsule. It is not a reflection of what anime fandom is today, and you should not expect it to be so, because it is 20 years old at this point, more or less. So if you're interested in anime fandom, or what what perceptions about anime fandom were, or what some of the realities of anime fandom were in a specific moment in time, you should absolutely watch this. It is not perfect, but it is absolutely worth your time. And Tobias, I'm going to leave the final takeaway from you. This movie is a fever dream, man. <laughs> it is wild. Specifically, I think minutes like seven and eight, there's just a bunch of quick cuts that it's just a bunch of wild, like wild thing after wild thing that is, I had to wonder if like I dropped acid or something. Like what the <laughs> hell? What am I watching? What is this? Like you've got some random old guy that's he's like, well, I don't know, man. They're just like cartoon characters. I don't know. You've got people screaming like anime at the top of their lungs. You've got uh Dave Merrill and a goatee and a, <laughs> and a t-shirt and a hot tub. It's just like, it's, it's a bunch of quick cuts that are just so, they just sum up the movie and to some degree the fandom uh for better or worse very quickly it uh i would i would agree that it's it's definitely something you need to watch to know what the fandom was like in the early 2000s um again for better or worse (laughs) it embodies uh uh i think if nothing else there are a bunch of big name bands here that are very important to anime history that are important to to see here. I will say that as much as we've talked about Carl Masick, I had never seen that man before. So to put a name to a face for the first time was really interesting. Uh, even though we don't get nearly enough uh, of the big name fans as I feel like we should have, it's still uh, it's a worthwhile watch. If you want some more recent sort of adjacent material to this documentary, you can listen to our interview with Helen McCarthy that we put up recently and our interview with robert woodhead who was also in the documentary from animazement last year so if you want to hear them talk about more stuff that is more relevant i guess to the modern era go check those things out i will say i was incorrect i said tobias would get the final word but actually we'll get the final word from none other than dave merrill himself as performed by austin in the twitter thread that he posted two years ago after i saw this movie for the first time okay so austin if you don't mind please regale us with what mr merrill had to say oh well dave doesn't say too much but i did ask him back in 2018 sort of if he had revisited this documentary since being featured in it and he had a couple things to say he said it is a really fascinating time capsule just like bill said Uh, not just for the anime con stuff the film was shot right during some crucial junctures in my life so there's a lot of personal context for me in the movie i would still love to see an anime convention documentary that spent less time on cosplayers and more time on the practical work you know, staff meetings, prepping the the technical stuff for video games and screenings and art shows, vendors, all the nuts and bolts stuff. And then I asked him briefly about Johnny Otaku, and he basically gave the story that Sully did earlier about how he moved to Texas to become a voice actor, but he got banned from every Texas anime con for stalking guests. 
and he is still trying to figure out what he was doing with that goatee. <laughs> and you know that a stalking guest is a thing that just doesn't happen at conventions anymore. Nope, we, oh, we've of course completely not. solved that problem. So this has been another installment of Otaku Mentories. I would like to thank my wonderful panel, Austin, Tobias, and Bill. And next time, I'm hoping we'll do a documentary that's a little more incisive and a little less acid trippy, to borrow from Tobias. <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. That was our Otaku Unite review. Thank you guys for waiting an absurd amount of time to actually hear this thing, and I hope you really enjoyed it. If you want to hear more about the podcast, please hit up our website over at thirdimpactanime.com. We're also on Twitter, pretty active on there, over at twitter.com slash ti underscore anime. You can also find us on Facebook if that is more of your thing. And definitely don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast catcher. And if you do feel so inclined, please feel free to drop us a review over on Apple Podcasts. We also have a very active Discord community that you can find the invitation to over on our website as well. If you'd like to support us financially, you can help us by joining our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash thirdimpactanime. Thank you again so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.